someone the NSA once listed as the most dangerous hacker in America, sure don't look like much. He travels the world and scans the web to keep you up to date on the latest threats to the internet and to your cybersecurity. He brings you the latest on the fight against cyber terrorism, keeping you safe with the best cybersecurity information on the radio. It's Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Good morning and welcome back to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Broadcasting thanks to News Talk Radio out of Tampa and Orlando and thanks to our digital partner, Cyberscoop.com, uh, with some great online content and news on cybersecurity. To connect with us, take a look at our website, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, on Twitter and Facebook at CybersecRadio. Uh, my personal Twitter account at Bambenek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. Uh, and if you'd like to ask us any questions or get in touch for sponsorships, you can send us email at johnbambenekradio at gmail.com, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com. And, of course, we podcast the show uh, and, and some extra content. Just look for Cybersecurity Today Radio uh, in your favorite podcasting software. So, have a great lineup to, for you today, uh, some great uh, interviews and uh, content. This week, we're, um, you know, I'm uh, recording and broadcasting from Las Vegas. Every year, uh, the end of July or early August, uh, tens of thousands of security professionals and hackers descend on Las Vegas for the Black Hat and DEF CON security conferences. So that's where I've been spending my entire week uh, here in Vegas, trying to keep cold out in the desert. Uh, and, you know, it's a great time to get together with uh, my fellow professionals, uh, hearing uh, about what's going on out there. Uh, obviously, there's a marketing aspect to it. Uh, a lot of companies trying to uh, sell product and so on. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, it's a great opportunity to, uh, like I said, network with people that I interact with uh, often, uh, but in very rarely in the same city with. Uh, so there's a lot of you know interesting talk and things that that happen at these conference. Uh, there's a lot of marketing, of course, and FUD uh, that you can ignore. I'm sure many of you uh, may hear stories coming out of the event of things you need to be worried about. Uh, a lot of people are talking about the Internet of Things, uh, you know, consumer devices, everyday consumer devices now that have operating systems and computers built into them. And and what does that mean for security? Um and I know one of the questions I, I've been asked several times when I'm here doing the interviews and talking to people and, you know, it's what keeps you up at night or what keeps me uh, awake at night? Uh, jokingly, I say, well, it's my children. I have five young children, um, you know, but the reality is, one, you know, I'm kind of numb to it. There's a lot of um, kind of apocalyptic uh, type of talk out there uh, that gets gin people ginned up. It's good to sell product and get people to spend money. But... The reality is that there's a lot of things that we hype up, right? Attacks on the power grid. You know, there are vulnerabilities. It could happen. It would be very damaging that it would happen. But what's often not talked about uh, at events like this and in articles you see online and so, so on and so forth is just simple things that you can do to protect yourself, your family, your small business, uh, your school, students, whatever, because there's nobody making money off telling you how to do free things. 
Uh, and a couple of those have come up here, right? You know, why isn't X company doing this free thing that really costs an hour of time to secure email or, or whatever? You know, but for you listeners out there, just people interested in how to protect your family, uh, I come back to these points again and again, right? You know, it's good that these conferences happen. They talk about things like hacking cars and, and all the interesting things. But, you know, it's up to you to protect yourself, having some idea uh, of where the points of weakness are. So always update your devices, your phones, your computers. Keep those things patched. Microsoft Windows 10 uh, and even Windows 7, 8, and many of these update by by default and reboot uh, you may get pop-ups for flash and java and whatever the reason this is important right you know the experts have developed the protection they're trying to get it to your computer you've just got to install it without that the bad guys know what those updates are they reverse engineer it they make exploits based off of it compromise you get to your credit card so on and so forth right so uh, it's always important to do uh, to get those updates applied now, when you're talking about smart devices, that can be a very hard thing to do. Uh, you know, if you've got a smart refrigerator, how do you figure out how to update it, right? It's, it's got its own interface, and that can be very difficult, uh, you know, to, to get through, right? There is no single answer. I could tell everybody how to put in Windows updates. I can't tell you on this show how to update your refrigerator or your smart TV. But certainly take a look at that. Figure out how these things are updated uh, and make sure uh, that you get those updates applied. Uh, if you just tuned in, you're listening to the Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. The second thing I want to emphasize, things that uh, you, know, you can do for free. Uh, always take a look at the, the security awareness training stuff out there. StopThinkConnect.org uh, is a great resource out there uh, by the Anti-Phishing Working Group. There are scammers all the time sending you emails. Some of it actually looks convincing, but always look for details of deception, right? Uh, ways, that, things that indicate that whoever's emailing you uh, is trying to deceive you uh, and uh, get you to compromise yourself. Uh, you know, one interesting thing that we talked about is mortgages, uh, or, or I shouldn't say mortgages per se, but buying homes. When you buy a home or sell a home, odds are that is the biggest financial transaction in raw dollars that you're going to make, uh, you know, in your life. Most people don't traffic in, uh, I, you know, I'm going to throw $100,000 here or there, but your home, right, real tangible asset. And there are people who are trying to take advantage of people who are selling their home or buying their home uh, to redirect where money gets wired to uh, find a way to, to get to that. You know, a lot of that involves your title company. Uh, to, to protect you, but always bear in mind when somebody, you know, gives you an updated, hey, you know, I just see that uh, uh, I sent you some old information, use this banking account number instead. When the stakes are really high, always take the extra moment to verify, you know, what you're seeing. Email is an insecure and insecure, insecurable medium, right, you know, but it's the tool that we have. Always try to sit there, go to encrypted email, there, and it's kind of cumbersome to use. But whenever there's an update, hey, use this bank account instead or whatever, make sure that they, that data is actually legitimate. You know, Call the person on the phone. Hey, did you mean to send me this? Is this actually the routing number? Is this actually the dollar amount? Because that extra few seconds of taking that step could make all the difference between you know, having a closing on your new home be uneventful and everybody standing around trying to figure out where hundreds of thousands of dollars disappeared to. And all that really takes is some awareness, uh, and some time 
and some scrutiny, right? Nobody's going to be able to sell you anything uh, to do that for you. Really takes you your own awareness. So moving forward, a little other interesting things uh, coming out of this conference, right? DEFCON, uh, the second part of this, black hat is more marketing. DEFCON is, is the more hacking where, uh, you know, people wearing black hoodies and black T-shirts are showcasing ways that they can exploit technology or do interesting things uh, that were otherwise unintended uh, with technology. Uh, I know that a lot of people are going to be talking about election security uh, and the security of voting machines. There's an entire what they call village. Uh, you know, it's essentially a room uh, in this casino hotel uh, where you know people will be able to see voting machines and get an idea of how they can be compromised. One of the biggest things that we have a problem with when talking about embedded device security and election cybersecurity and cybersecurity in general is is a lot of lack of talent in in a in a very specific manner. Right? I can teach almost anything anybody the basics of cybersecurity: how to keep your computer up to date, how not to click on simple things, analyze network traffic, reverse engineer malware, so on and so forth. But really, the skill set of saying, "Hey, you know what? This is a new." feature, a new device that does some interesting things, let's figure out what I can do wrong with it and how I can find uh, a way to break it or do something unintended, right? You know, and that's kind of the hacker ethos. Not all are bad, uh, you know, certainly all have authority issues or color outside the lines, but there's a group of people always who are trying to figure out security vulnerabilities in software and contribute to the better of society. So certainly take a look at penetration testing, hardware hacking, uh, if you're of that mindset, uh, and help out. Just pick up something uh, you know, you've got lying around the house and see if there's a way to compromise it, work with the manufacturer, see if you can get some fixes in there to help keep us all a little bit safer. So stay tuned. We're going to have an interview coming up here right next. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambadak. Be, stay tuned for more. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambin. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Joining me now is Patrick O'Neill from CyberScoop, our digital partner. You can find them online at cyberscoop.com. And uh, some of our podcasts are up on their website, too. Uh, so thank you for joining us today, Patrick. Thank you for having me, as always. All right. So uh, let's jump right into it. Some big uh, changes uh, being indicated this week anyway. Uh, I think the only thing we know for sure is the first cybersecurity coordinator, um, in essence, at the diplomatic rank under ambassador, but pretty high-ranking State Department official for cybersecurity issues, was uh, uh, announced that he was leaving his post by the end of this month. Uh, and that there might be potential reorganization in how the State Department handles these issues. So uh, why don't you go and tell us, what, what do we know so far? Uh, well, I think you set that up perfectly because there's a lot we don't know. What we do know is that Chris Painter uh, is leaving the State Department. He's leaving his role as the top cyber diplomat uh, for the U.S., uh, there have been reports following that initial report uh, saying that the entire department underneath him is being downsized. Um, now, you, you have to follow that with some of the open questions. Um, what does that mean 
for um, our foreign policy as far as cyber. What does that mean for the department? What does that mean for other departments in terms of where those responsibilities go, who carries them out? Um, and then what does that mean for Chris Painter, who apparently is going to be headed uh, to the DOJ, is the latest report, mm-hmm. um, back to the DOJ, which is where he uh, was earlier in his career, uh, after some personal time when he leaves on July 31st. Um, so there's a lot of questions. And then, you know, there's obviously the question of timing, right? Um, I think that really on any level, you look at it in terms of international relations uh, with, uh, with the U.S., cyber is at or near the top of the priority list. So how does this make sense? And when you ask that question, uh, the answers are limited or silent, right? There mm-hmm. hasn't been much in, by way of explanation. Um, and so, <laughs> yeah, you know, more questions than answers at this point. Big questions, though. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of shocked me how little attention this has gotten on even a national level. You know, this seems maybe like a wonky position, but it's incredibly important um, Chris Painter has impact on headline news on important international affairs. So I think you'll see this kind of creep more into uh, the mainstream questions and news as time goes on. Well, no, no, I certainly think so. It's one of these roles that, you know, exists. There's a lot of work that needs to be done at a diplomatic level. Uh, Just this week, uh, there was uh, an international cooperation for the prosecution of people behind Alphabet, uh, which, uh, you know, a lot of people focus on law enforcement, but it is enabled by the State Department because anytime countries have to cooperate, well, they go through the State Department or whatever foreign affairs department uh, in a foreign country. So, um, uh, one of the interesting things that I, I took note of, all right, uh, Obama, uh, prior to his leaving last year, set up a cybersecurity commission. What more can we do? And suggested that uh, this coordinator for cyber issues should be made an ambassador at large, right, uh, of which we have six. Uh, four, four of those six are vacant, right? So uh, certainly it seems that, you know, assuming the stories are true and some of the indications from the State Department that are getting that's going to be downsized, the office will be downsized or eliminated and rolled into uh, a business affairs office. I forget exactly which one, business and trade policy or something along those lines, uh, certainly seems to be taking it in a different direction. That's right. And I mean, you pointed out a great specific example, right? So Alphabet is a major darknet market. Um, that was making millions and millions of dollars and a multinational law enforcement um, and intelligence operation ended up bringing it down, ended up bringing, it was announced today, several other markets down. And there are a bunch of arrests that have been made. And, are, and that, is, that is exactly enabled by, um, by guys like Painter and the people in his orbit. Um, you know, there was, I think, within the last month, uh, a partnership announced with Israel um, in terms of uh, in the cyber domain. Um, obviously, there's a lot of work with Europe going on in that domain. And, and this all crosses into Chris Painter's um, world and that area of State Department. So the question is, what's the future there? I guess, you know, stay tuned. We'll we'll find out. Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly it, right? More questions than answers, and, you know, and it's certainly a very relevant post. Uh, you also had another story up this week, uh, Senator Ron Wyden sending a, an email to the Department of Homeland Security uh, about email security for uh, the U.S. federal government. Uh, you know, uh, walk us through through what that is. I mean, I know what DMARC is, but uh, uh, in, in a digestible form, if you can, exactly what Senator Wyden was asking for. 
Yeah, so I think the easiest way, the you know, the bite-sized version of this is that DMARC is about email integrity. It's about anti-phishing. It's about um, not ha- it's anti-impersonation technology, which, you know, when you think about it and you think about how it's, it's an industry standard, you see this in the private sector, the fact that it hasn't made its way across federal agencies is for people in that world, um, well, I guess it depends how you look at it, but it's something that needs to have happened yesterday, and, and mm-hmm. Wyden is pushing for it to happen now. Um, and it's part of a wider push, um, I think, kind of to understand what's going on, at least out of Wyden's office. He's really been sending these letters over the last year, um, especially in 2017, getting into certain cybersecurity issues on a relatively granular level. You don't see letters coming out of a senator's office saying, we need two-factor authentication, mm-hmm. we need DMARC, we need start uh, TLS, uh, email <laughs> encryption, um, we, and that's what we're seeing. And, we need actual smart cards and not ID cards that just have the uh, picture yeah. of a smart card on it. <laughs> right, right. I mean, listen, it's a low bar, uh, but he's, he's jumping over it in terms of getting into these somewhat obvious, you know, nonpartisan issues of security in the federal government. Um, and the reason he's doing that now is because he's employing um, Chris Segoyan, who was an ACLU technologist for four years. I think it's just important to point out um, the pivotal role. Chris is the, is the driving force behind these mm-hmm. letters. There's no doubt about it. Um, these are issues that he has brought up for years before going into government. Right, um, right. And he's able to bring to bear a technical education that is extremely rare. Um, in in congressional offices. So, um, you know, the, the reaction, uh, just speaking broadly about what's come out of Wyden's office on this stuff over the last year, has been mixed. Um, you know, the Pentagon adopted better email encryption, um, mm-hmm. but there's been other things that have been resisted or not acted on. So, you know, we'll see what happens in terms of DMARC. It seems like a no-brainer, but... Um, it's the federal government, so we'll, we'll oh, all right. uh, stay tuned. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the basic, yeah, the basic upshot, right? This is a very basic step, right? That that you know, security one hundred and one thing that prevents people from sending email that looks like it's coming from a government address, right? You know, so you couldn't send exactly. an email at ron dot at mail dot senate dot gov or whatever his email address actually is, right? So very or basic out of the stuff. IRS, you yeah, know, there are these massive yeah. phishing campaigns going on out of. Uh, or rather impersonating uh, government agencies um, that make a ton of money and are very common mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. should be um, probably, you know, prevented, caught, uh, fought against. So Absolutely. this would help in a lot of that stuff. Absolutely. So running up to a hard stop here. Well, again, thank you, Patrick O'Neill, Cyberscoop.com, our digital partner, for joining us. Uh, stay tuned. We have more coming up after the break. You're listening to Cybersecurity Radio with John Bambanek, and we'll be right back after this short break. Scan your computer, but don't scan the dial. Stay right here. John Bambanek will be right back. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. And welcome back. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. 
Um, so great interview there. I want to take a, a segue in here, talk a little bit about news, uh, some of the articles you may have seen last week and information uh, that uh, you need to know and could be useful to protect you, your family, your small business. Uh, the first I wanted uh, to bring up, uh, I think we touched base on this a little bit last week, a story out of the State Department. There is a, a coordinator for cybersecurity issues, uh, Christopher Painter. His last day will be uh, Monday. Uh, he's going back to the Justice Department. And there's a lot of talk about uh, uh, dissolving that office that handles cybersecurity for the State Department or migrating it into a business trade office, uh, you know, so there's a fair bit of consternation about what that means and certainly what it uh, uh, might mean for cybersecurity going forward in terms of foreign policy. Uh, and there's an article in uh, The Hill magazine talking about that. Obama's cybersecurity czar uh, had some commentary about how that was a bad, uh, bad idea. Uh, very I'm very sympathetic to that point of view. I actually uh, met him uh, th a couple of days ago uh, by, uh, by the name of Michael Daniel. Uh, so the idea here, right, um, and there's things going on in the State Department and uh, transformation that Secretary Tillerson wants to do. But the idea that we can kind of downgrade or avoid these issues or don't need to engage as much. Um, it certainly has some concerns for me, and it'll impact actually what I do. As, as you may know, I help investigate global cybercrime every now and then. We can actually get to the point of an indictment and put people away. Um, I don't talk a great deal about it, at least on this show, but it's a very difficult process because laws are enforced on a national basis, but cybercrime is a global phenomenon. It doesn't respect national boundaries. So uh, there's a lot of international cooperation that goes into it. Uh, and a lot of getting foreign ministries involved, the State Department involved, which plays a big role because anytime the U.S. talks to another country, that, that's got to go through the State Department. That's the department that does that. So certainly having somebody in place somehow that will ha help expedite and deal with simple things like getting a subpoena or summons or law enforcement data from another country, that's got to go through the State Department. Uh, it's, it's somewhat of an arduous process. Uh, but making sure that's accelerated, things get done, so these investigations can go forward because the big impact is eventually we can put these people in jail and we're not really going to solve the cybercrime problem until we start putting criminals in jail because cybercrime uh, does, in fact, pay. There's more money, uh, or I should say there's more crime out there that we can ever prosecute, but we start dealing with that problem by putting people in jail uh, from time to time uh, and try to get better and faster every time. Uh, and the State Department does have a role in that. So however, however it does get reorganized, whatever ends up happening, you know, certainly pay attention to that. But certainly there's a real issue in terms of what our country is doing with cybersecurity, how it relates to other nations. Uh, and there's certainly a big place for that at the State Department. So we'll, we'll keep a track of that story, let you know uh, how things develop there. So uh, another story out there talking about how most companies fail uh, to measure cybersecurity effectiveness. And I'm sure probably many of you know this intuitively, right? You know, are the tools that we do to protect ourselves effective? Is the antivirus I'm buying actually keeping me safe? Uh, you may have other tools that you use on your laptops or in your office. And it, it goes to, there's a lot of money in cybersecurity right now. A lot of people are scared, not necessarily scared of the correct things. There are truly impactful things that people aren't thinking of, and there are truly impactful things that we're thinking too much of. 
but we don't have good metrics to you know say hey is this effective is this not is what we're doing really matter is what we're doing to protect my children uh you know really having the desired effect so uh, it's it's a very big and interesting problem uh, and one i don't know if i have the answer to to solve but many companies out there you know don't have the answer either so when you think hey you know what i'm confused i don't know if this really matters if it's really going to do the job i mean feel free to email the show we have a social media segment every now and then we'll answer questions but don't feel that uh it's some kind of deficiency right because many companies don't have this right either uh and we're still trying to to figure out some of these issues and these impacts of adopting technology in in the way we have uh and what it means and how to secure it because we adopt a lot of things that never we never imagined would be on the internet and put it on the internet credit card fraud is a great example we've always had credit card fraud but prior to the internet right you had to physically be somewhere or phone into somewhere uh, to do it right you were limited by the time and logistical effort for a single person to commit so much fraud with the internet computers are really good about doing many thousands or millions of things per second and they can do it to computers all over the world so now instead of having a person go from store to store to store with a stolen credit card i can simply order a whole bunch of stuff online on the internet and do it for a million different cards simultaneously that wasn't a risk that was really fully understood when we did it the same thing for health records and a lot of these things that we're hearing about now uh the power grid and industrial control systems uh so you know, a lot of risks of, of lessons that we learned with PCs and servers uh, are not being applied to these devices because the decisions are being made by people who uh, haven't been at it a long time. So certainly uh, we're going to hear a lot more about this. And as more we do more things electronically and get more digitized, the more risks will come up. Uh, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. As an example of one of those things that, you know, we're going more in an electronic world uh, and the risks are not fully understood or haven't been fully understood by the people making decisions. Uh, article out there on NPR, some reporting uh, this week talking about healthcare facilities uh, and dealing with cybersecurity threats and how they're falling behind. Um, post HIPAA and some other laws, really big push for electronic health records uh, with the Affordable Care Act too, uh, to going to more digitized things. Very, they're very big benefits for electronic health records. Previously, if you go to a different doctor for, I don't know, cancer treatment or heart problems or whatever, right, they would have to get documents faxed or mailed to the new doctor, which takes time. Now, electronically, you can ship it from one place to another, and it takes seconds, what used to take days. Very good. Uh, there's very strong advantages for that, for the delivery of health care. But the risks are involved that people could steal those health records. Uh, we haven't heard much on that in the, in the recent months. But, you know, last year there was big breaches of a lot of health records and health insurance data uh, that compromises very sensitive information about you. I mean, I was, I was telling a colleague uh, earlier today, you could post a picture of my credit card online. And the worst thing that's going to happen is that I'm going to have to call that credit card company and say I didn't make any of these charges. And I'm not going to have to pay anything. 
But if I lose my health records or if the health records get modified, it could be a real big impact. And we saw that with WannaCry, that global ransomware outbreak that led to a significant disruption of the National Health Service in the United Kingdom, right? Ambulances are being redirected, you know, surgeries are being canceled or rescheduled. Uh, nobody died, thankfully, because of it. But real impacts were starting to be aware of what the risks are, because uh, unfortunately, until bad things happen, people tend not to believe that those bad things can happen. Uh, and healthcare is is a really big area, right? Because now you're not dealing with lost money; you're dealing with potentially lost lives. I think there's been a lot of wake-up calls recently. Hospitals are in a big rush to get this uh, problem solved. Ransomware has been a big piece of, of the risk uh, because uh, hackers will often send ransomware to hospitals, do a deep dive because they know hospitals absolutely need to have this data. They have to operate because life and death, uh, you know, life may depend upon it. So they're able to get large quantities of money uh, out of victims this way. So uh, certainly, uh, you know, some big things to think about. Uh, unfortunately, really, there's not much we can do to add to, to protect themselves. It's on professionals like myself or anybody in the, in the audience who wants to get into cybersecurity uh, to help protect consumers here because, uh, you know, in this case, you know, at the hospital, they've got the medical equipment, they've got the data, they've got to be the ones to protect it. So now take a short break here. You're listening to Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Be back for more. This is Cybersecurity Today with John Bambanek. Bambanek's back with the latest on cybersecurity. And welcome back. You've tuned into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host, John Bambanek. Uh, next up, we have Robin Burke joining us, uh, author of an upcoming book, We Don't Have to Collapse, But We Could, How to Fix the Complex Systems We Rely On. Uh, she's formerly with the Defense Threat Reduction Agency doing uh, interdependent network research, as uh, an expert on network science, a lot of uh, experience uh, doing technical stuff. So I wanted to bring her on uh, talking about uh, the dangers uh, of a cyber attack. You know, it's a topic we've talked about on the show a couple of times uh, and what you need to know. Thank you for joining us today, Robin. Thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks. So let's get right into it, right? Uh, society has a lot of complex systems, you know, and many of it's networked, connected to the Internet. Uh, most of it is transparent to us as users. You know, we would look at it and never, never quite know. Yes. But it's all vulnerable. You know, we, we talked in the last segment about finding uh, ocean-faring ships on Shodan and accessing its GPS transceivers. How, mm -hmm. do, we, how do we fix this problem uh, that we keep running into, uh, you know, time and time again? Well, I think we fix it long term the way software fixed the problems with the waterfall development model. Mm-hmm. And the way that uh, a long time ago, people in the Western tradition uh, urged principles like subsidiarity, mm -hmm. uh, which, is, which comes out of the theology area. But what it comes down to is the idea that what makes our large complex systems vulnerable is precisely their interdependence. And the more that we attempt to control them from some centralized uh, point and to make them highly efficient, 
the more we introduce the likelihood of problems. So if I may, I'll tell you a brief story about how that was discovered. When I was at DITRA, I was running this uh, research grant program. DITRA doesn't do much in the way of basic research because that's not its job. Uh, But when you have a mission-critical need, people's lives are at stake, and there are no tools, you've got to get somebody to figure out how to make tools. So we did this research grant program in this emerging new discipline called network science, which is the mathematics of how complex adaptive network systems work, what makes them fragile, what makes them surprisingly robust sometimes. And I kicked off a grant with two very senior researchers. They're quite well known in the physics world. And I asked them, you know, you're looking at, you're you're addressing a research problem regarding how a failure in a network like the Internet or the power grid would cascade, would cause like an avalanche of of successive failures. And we're familiar with this with denial of service attacks, right? Yeah, yeah. You can, you know, uh, you can cause an avalanche of timeouts across the whole internet if you do enough denial of service work. Um, so I asked of these physicists, Gene Stanley and Shlomo Havlin. I said, you know, if you get a chance during your research, would you please address whether your research results on this would change? in the event that the network we're talking about isn't standing alone, but is connected to other networks, like the power grid and the Internet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because up until then, the network science that had been done had been done on standalone models of of networks. You know, they have nodes, they have connections, what kinds of things make them strong, what make them weak. Um, And these... Researchers being extremely good and very senior in the field, three months later, had an article accepted at Nature, which is pretty breathtaking. And here's what it came down to. They had access to data from a major power and Internet blackout that swept across Italy in less than 24 hours right after, just a few days after the Allies entered Iraq in 2003. And of course, everybody says this has got to be some sort of sabotage or terror. Um, Nobody could find any evidence for that. Mm. And they looked. So Shlomo Havlin and Gene Stanley went back and looked at the data again. Mm -hmm. And they found something really interesting. There was this relatively unimportant, you know, out in the countryside power plant just happened to be the power source for an internet routing node. It wasn't a major node, it wasn't Rome, except that most of the SCADA systems, most of the uh, system control and data acquisition commands to other power plants in that region of Italy flowed through that internet node. Can you see what's gonna happen? Yeah. Right. And that's actually uh, what swept across the country. And Gene Stanley referred to it as the surprising fragility of interdependence. And so um, one of the ways that we get around this problem is to not have single interdependences like that. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. for those of, of our listeners who want to read a little bit more about that work, 
Wired magazine had an article, um, trying to remember which year, but if you Google mathematics prevent network failure and Wired, it was in Wired magazine, mm-hmm. you pull up the article, I'm quoted at the end in it, all but one of the researchers that is um, interviewed in that article was funded at least in part by my program and that Italian blackout is the lead story in the article. No, it's a very interesting story, and it kind of reminds me of an anecdote that that I know kind of the more cynical and dark people in cybersecurity will use, right? You know, Mm -hmm. uh, that it's also brittle. You know, we're not surprised that people break into it or that it breaks. We're surprised that it actually works in the first place. Well, and you know the interesting thing about all of that, it goes back to the it goes back to the heart of TCP/IP, mm-hmm. right? The original design of the internet was to allow military communications in the event that there was a nuclear attack on continental United States, and power and uh, telephone lines were cut. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's an intentionally inefficient, redundant system, but its original design is much more uh, vulnerable than the OSI stack model. And the reason that's true is that the assumption was that this was a closed system. Right. You know, and when it went from ARPANET to the internet and then went international, but we were still stuck with TCP IP, well, first of all, I mean, that was great. It got mm-hmm. us PCs quickly. It got us the Internet quickly. Oh, yeah. It's a nice light stack, but boy, does it have holes. Mm. No, I, I, absolutely right. I mean, it's a tool that we had, and I, I don't think a lot of people realize, unless you've been doing this a long time, is just how much we, we, we kind of borrowed from other things and built on it and then said, okay, let's, you know, let's build the Internet in a connected, connected world on top of it, you know, when the yes. assumptions were not not really support of that tcp ip the basic core networking concept of being able to get from one computer to another uh and have services right uh, even credit cards for the most part mm-hmm. right you know uh, there, there's not that much credit card fraud in the real world i mean you could have it but we just said oh well let's just use that 16 digit number pl- plug it into web forms what can go wrong you've got orders of magnitude <laughs> more credit card fraud because the system doesn't work in in a networked world the, the assumptions are are completely wrong for what we're, we're we're doing you've been listening to robin burke upcoming book we don't have to collapse but we could how to fix a complex system to rely on be out in 20 uh, 2018 uh so check out for that uh and uh you know a lot of great information but but really yeah, the, the book she's talking about is answering the questions okay what to do about this we all kind of know what the problem is uh it may be not to a great technical detail but we know bad things can happen you know but the question is what's then how to plan for it uh, uh you know to prepare for it and and what we can do to prevent it so a lot of great information there so look forward to uh to reading those when they come out uh, also so uh thank you for joining us robin my pleasure john take care
That brings us to the end of our show today. Hope you enjoyed listening. If you'd like to connect with us, visit our website, CybersecurityTodayRadio.com, at Facebook and Twitter, at CybersecRadio, or my personal Twitter account, at Bambenek, B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K. Uh, you can email us, J-O-H-N-B-A-M-B-E-N-E-K, radio at gmail.com, for questions you want to hear us address on the air. Uh, again, thanks to our digital partner, CyberScoop.com has great cybersecurity news to keep you informed throughout the week and to our radio affiliates AM820 News covering Tampa Bay and the West Coast as well as AM1060 News covering the Space Coast and Orlando uh, if you'd like to connect with us potentially be a sponsor of the show uh, drop us an email connect with us online to get out your cybersecurity or IT service thank you for tuning into Cybersecurity Today Radio with your host John Bambanek enjoy the rest of your weekend and catch you next week at the same time